All right, good morning, church. Have a seat. Man, thank you for being here with us today. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our Advent series and uh, talking about the promises of God. And um, as Dustin alluded to, and uh, our worship team saying so well, we're going to be talking about the promised Redeemer. So this morning, uh, we're going to start off, we're going to flip, we've been looking at a, a promise from Isaiah revealed in a, a fulfillment in Matthew each week, and so this week we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 11, uh, looking at verses 2 through 6, which Zach just re- read. Uh, last week we ended by looking, reading of how John the Baptist prepared the way in Matthew 3. So in Matthew 3, we saw John who had been born to, from from an infant, as an infant John leaped in the womb of his mother as, as being in the presence of Jesus. And John was put on this earth to prepare, to prepare to the way of Jesus and to announce his coming. And so we, saw, we ended last week by seeing that happen in Matthew 3. And so today, we're looking at a text that takes place kind of what happened after that, following the events of this great announcement. So the first verse, verse we're going to look at Matthew eleven two. It says this. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is coming, or who, who is to come, or shall we look for another? So he, he asks, he wants to ask Jesus. He, it says he had considered, the, he had heard of the works of Jesus, and that's what led him to send his followers to ask this question of Jesus. So we ask, well, what had been the deeds of Jesus? So last week we saw John makes this announcement in Matthew 3. Now we're in Matthew 11, and John is in prison, and he's hearing these things about Jesus. So what, what had been those things he had heard? Uh, what we see when we, just looking even at chapter headings between 3 and 11, he had preached the good news. He had called the disciples. He had cleansed the leper. He had healed many. He had calmed the storm. He had healed a paralytic. Men with demons that had demons cast out of them. He had called a tax collector to discipleship. He had healed the blind. He had gave the mute a voice. He had sent out the twelve disciples. When we look at this text, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, are you the one who is to come? It seems that this that what these deeds that Christ had done were not what John expected. Something about hearing what Jesus had done leads John to this place where all of a sudden he's not so sure about this anymore. And he wants to just confirm with Jesus, are you him? It seems that John, you know, John, John didn't know what the Messiah would do. He knew the Messiah would come and he was to pave the way for the Lord. But he didn't know what that would look like once Jesus came. And so it seems that perhaps like many, John is caught off guard by the ways of the Redeemer. Like many, maybe he thought the the work of the Messiah would be to primarily form about some form of political deliverance. Okay, I think that's what many still hope today that the Messiah will ultimately do. But Jesus is much bigger than that. It'll help us to sympathize with John's questioning when we consider his current position here in Matthew 11. So in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, we hear very briefly, we see that John has been imprisoned. After John was imprisoned, we saw Jesus, he fleed to another town. 
But in Matthew 14, a few chapters after this one, we get a full picture of the story of what had happened, how John had ended up in prison. It says this, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to be put to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. This isn't a normal text necessarily for your Christmas service, but bear with me. Herod of Galilee had paid a visit to his brother in Rome, and during that visit he seduced his brother's wife. And he came home again, and he dismissed his own wife, and he married the sister-in-law whom he had lured away from her husband. Publicly and sternly, John rebuked Herod, and it was never safe to rebuke Herod. So he was, Herod took his revenge. John was thrown into the dungeons of the fortress of Machaerus near the mountains of the Dead Sea. So when you hear John's questioning, it's important to understand that John is three verses or he's three chapters away from his head being delivered on a platter. Okay, so when you hear the urgency in John's voice and you hear him wanting to just be assured, it kind of makes sense. John sends his disciples to question at Jesus as one who sat in prison. Likely, John knew he, he could probably see where things were heading and knew he would not live much longer. Because passages such as John 1, 29 through 36 tell us that John had previously recognized who Christ was. It's not that he was never sure. John knew who Jesus was, yet now he seems to doubt. Like us... The difference between chapter 3 and chapter 11 paint a picture of the up and downs of discipleship. That in chapter 3, it's prepare ye the way of the Lord, locusts and honey, man. Like God says, Christ is here. In chapter 11, it's are you sure? Are you sure you're the one? And John would soon give his life in service to Jesus. Suffering and trial bring forth his greatest fears and insecurities. What if he's not who he said he was? What if, John has to be thinking, like, what if my life is wasted in vain? So these questions, these questions for Jesus are full of weight. Are you the one? Is there another? Like, should, are you just a precursor? Should we actually be looking for another? The father's like, surely this isn't the plan. The bottom line for John, what John seems to be asking Jesus through his disciples, is why aren't you doing more like this? He's hearing these stories, and like, this this can't be it. Like, I can only imagine John thinking, like, that's, I'm really glad the blind guy can see now, but what about the dude who's about to cut my head off? Like, like that's great, but aren't you supposed to be overtaking these corrupt leaders? Aren't you supposed to put everything as it should be? Like, there's a, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's understandable, John's frustration. Like, this can't. This can't be it. These nice things you're doing for people, that can't be it. And the truth is, isn't this the question of every anxious disciple? 
Why aren't you doing more? It's certainly a question that I ask, and I'm not the first. And Christ responds to John and all of us by assuring him of his status as the Messiah, as the great, wise, perfect Redeemer. In verses 4 through 6, he said, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As usual, as usual Jesus does not give a simple yes or no answer. Recently, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or what, but I started reading some uh, Louis L'Amour novels like my grandpa read, and they're so good. And one of the things that I've appreciated in this mo- and, and a couple of the most recent ones I've read is how much Louis L'Amour values uh, Indian language and how in I- many Indian languages historically, like their words were bigger, they were more meaningful than our words. Like a word didn't simply, like a word for morning didn't just mean a time period in the day, but the word was intended to reflect the way morning felt and the way morning saw. Like, it, like words weren't just meant to define something, but to paint a picture of of what they feel like and to give this broader definition than our English language has anything for. In many ways, in the same way, when Jesus answers questions, when he answers John, he's not just answering the question, but he's, he's teaching something greater about who he is. His answers are perfect and are meant to not only assure John, but to help teach John something about the ways of the kingdom, even using language that would remind John of the promises of old. And then ending like, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, reminding John that, that blessed are you by not being offended by me and the ways of the Lord. The truth is that for the most part, for John, for all of us, the the way of the Lord is slow. Sanctified perseverance in the doing of apparently small things. The history of the church shows us that this is one of the most difficult lessons for disciples to learn. But it's continually the way in which the Redeemer models for us how to be a redemptive people. The Lord does small things slowly that seem small to us, but in the weight of eternity are big things. Sanctification can seem slow. It can seem like I just continually struggle over and over again with the same thing. Paul himself acknowledges this. Paul says, like even the great Paul, he says, I I do the things that I don't desire to do. Like this life is a life of, of trial and perseverance dependent on the spirit as we struggle in the flesh. And yet, slowly and surely, God is conforming those of us who are his to himself. Because the great Redeemer came. And that life that we live, that we will, ne- like the, the, the continual struggles we will have, the slow, steady endurance that leads to holiness through Christ is only happening because of Christ. Because he came as a child, he put on flesh, and he bore in the same difficulties that we do, yet he did so faithfully and perfectly. That his children might be redeemed and bestowed on us is the perfect righteousness of Christ. That we might see and, and be affirmed. Often we 
We want big and fast and immediate. Like that's that's the that's the world we live in. We want we want that we, we want to make an impact that is significant and huge. In many ways, because we, like John, know that we have an end day that is coming. Like John knows, he has been well aware his whole life that he was set aside for a specific purpose. And now he's well aware in a prison cell that it's about to be over. And he just wants to make sure, like he, John was, I think John was probably hopeful that he would get to see all of the magnificence of God's story that would all just be wrapped up. And that's, that's not going to be the case. And so like John, we often desire for the Lord to do more, that we might see and be affirmed. However, the great Redeemer has never ceased to do his work. He is not part of our story. We are part of his story. And that story, this great story of the Redeemer, one place that that is shared in the Old Testament is in Isaiah 35, 1 through 10, where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. It says this, beginning in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. It's in this good news that all will be redeemed as it should be, that we are strengthened to be a redemptive people ourselves. And in verses in verse 3, we see a picture of what is needed for us to be such a people. Verse 3 says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. The good news of the gospel, that God so loved us that he gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for us, is the good news of our glorious Redeemer whose ways are perfect and timely. Today his ways may seem subtle, like that's part of what John's struggling with. Like these things seem so small and subtle, yet... In Isaiah, we're reminded that that will not always be. That those are his ways now, but ultimately they are pointing us towards a day where he will redeem all things. As he has redeemed us, as the Father has redeemed us in Christ, one day he will restore all things to himself. This news has the power to strengthen our weak hands, Isaiah said. Our hands are the means by which we work. And as humans, we're, we're meant to work, not only to toil the field of the earth, but also God has called his people to a mission, to go forward and make disciples and baptize them. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Our hands are, are meant to symbolize the way in which we work, and yet our hands grow weak when they're not used for such things. Okay, I've recently I have hit like the hard reality after a long break. I've started I started going to the gym again, you know, like discipleship. You have these up and downs, seasons where you're motivated, seasons where you're not. And uh, I've hit very quickly with the realization that I, I'm not strong as strong as I once was when I was doing this every day consistently. And uh, the truth is that in the same way, like our hands, when they are when they're not doing what they've been intended to do, when we're not living out of the way that we are intended to live doing the things God has called us to, our hands grow weak. But the good news of the gospel of the great Redeemer strengthens our hands. The gospel is our great encouragement. 
Jesus is who he says he is. And this was his assurance to John. Jesus tells John of the things that have happened. He's reminding John that I'm doing what I said I would do. The gospel is the power by which our hands are strengthened. That we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And this news has the power to make firm our feeble knees. On our knees before the Father, who's a position from which we draw strength. The posture appears to be one of weakness, but it's a position from one which one begs for mercy to a superior being. And that is the position in which we are most strong. And before the Lord, this is the posture where we best exhibit our position of dependence. The gospel reminds us of God's faithfulness. That God is the great redeemer and that his plan is perfect. It's not only perfect, but it's never been halted. It's never hit a stumbling block. It's never stumbled. It's never ceased to be so. We need knees that hit the ground before our feet do each day. We need to repent of the truth that we often discount the weakness of our knees. We often see that as a a small thing or a petty thing. We have so much bigger things we have to do. But the truth is we have we have nothing bigger. Being on our knees before the Lord, like be, being in, in strengthened by the truth of the gospel, is a, is a way and way, is a part of how we were created. That it's, it's through the good news of who Christ is that our hands are strengthened, that our feeble knees are put in their correct posture before Him. And this is just a difficult thing for us as humans. All too often, I, I was just talking to the uh, at men's night last night, confessing like how guilty I am myself of, of taking the things the Lord has called me to and then feeling like it's by my strength or my power that those things will happen. Like I can preach that God builds his church, but all too often on, a, on, on, on certain days, I believe that maybe I, I, I operate out of a way as if that's something that I somehow do. It's surely not. The gospel strengthens my hands for the work by strengthening my knees that I might be in a proper position before him, acknowledging that he is the great redeemer. His ways are perfect. His plan will be fulfilled. That's the, the one of the beauties of this season is that in the same way that Jesus reminded John, I am who I say I am. I'm doing what I said I would do. He reminds us of this truth during Advent season. We can be encouraged as an anticipatory people. We can revolve our lives around the truth that Christ will return. Because Jesus reminds us, much like John, everything I'm saying is true. Everything I said would happen will happen. Everything that I said that God laid out long before Christ arrived on the scene happened. He fulfills his promises. And so we can rest assured in that. In Hebrews 12.12, this passage here in Isaiah is quoted as a reminder that even his reproof is intended to strengthen us. For the world, his reproof is judgment, but for us, his proof is just part of his great redemption. Hebrews 12.11 and 12 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Often we can be very aware of our drooping hands. We can be very aware of our weak knees. 
But when we operate out of our own tendencies or out of our own mind, that just leads us to despair. Which just leads us to wallow in not living up to that which we feel we should live up to. And so we just ignore it and we catch ourselves up in things that we can control. I can control my job. I can control things, how, how things are at home. I can control these things. That just leads me to feel guilty and hopeless, so I'll just put myself here. But in those moments, we're missing the, the whole point of the gospel. Yes, we don't measure up. But the good news is that Jesus did measure up. And so that's done for you. And that news causes us to lift up our drooping hands and continue forward after him. Not because we're able, but because he's able and he did and he has redeemed us. We don't stop fighting this side of eternity. We don't don't stop. You will fail again and again and again, but we don't stop because he didn't fail. Because he was the promised redeemer, he is the promised redeemer, and his ways are perfect. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the paths for your feet. Make straight the paths. Continue forward. Jesus and the Holy Spirit empowers you to do such things. In verse 4 of Isaiah 35, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What is your hope and anxiety? Anxiety is, is real this side of eternity. If we seek to follow Jesus, if we don't, if we, when the day comes that we are no longer successful in distracting ourselves with lesser things and we turn back, we'll face anxieties, insecurities. What is our hope in that time? Our hope in that time is be strong and fear not, because God's promises are true. He will come. Like, that's, that's what he says here. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come. One of the reasons we make such a big deal about Advent is because what is true of this season is true of every season. That though we struggle, though we fail, though we lose heart, we remind one another, we preach the gospel to one another. Be strong, fear not, for he will come. We can endure this time knowing that this time is just a a blimp on the radar. Like John, we will not live long. We will not be here long. We are a blimp on the timeline of God's redemptive story. And so will we not fill that with petty things, but would we fill that with faithful things? That we may, like John, we get to be a part of that story. Not him a part of our story, but us a part of his. In this world, conflict cannot be avoided. We will surely face difficulty. Like John, in moments of trial, we are often faced with the greater trial of our own fears and our own doubts. Our doubts and fears rise to the surface when suffering comes. That's why suffering is so important, because it allows those things that come to the surface, that we won't just, we can't just suppress them any longer, but we have to face them and deal with them. And it's in that moment that our salvation is confirmed, and that Christ doesn't let us go in that, but he reminds us of who he is and what he's done in that. For John and for myself, this is often rooted in a desire, like my fears, my Uh, doubts in those times are rooted in a desire for God to redeem in the way that I believe he should. When I'm discouraged, when I'm frustrated, when I don't feel like God, like God, why aren't you doing more? 
Can I just be honest? Like, that's a real question in the midst of church planting, like for all of us. Like, on, the, like on, that, on that hard Sunday, on that week where things just don't seem to come together the way you should, like the real question in my mind is the question of John the Baptist. Why aren't you doing more? Like, I, I get that you're God, but I feel like I could give you a better plan. Like, I, I think I have a better way this could be done. I mean, if you would just do this... In in moments of suffering, in moments of trial, I tend to desire for God to redeem in the way that I think he should, as if my 33 years on this life give me the scope of God, who has always been and will always be. One of the great struggles of being a disciple, one of the greatest struggles of being God's church is that we don't get to ask the same questions as the world does. The world asks what would be best for me, what best accommodates my needs. But for God's people, we ask, what would you have of me, O Lord? How do I fit into your redemptive story? How does the kingdom best go forth? How do I get to take part in that? Christian, this is a critical shift in the question. This is a critical shift in how we mold and live our lives. Your time in this life isn't meant for what's best for you, but how how do we get to be a redemptive people in the midst of the great Redeemer's redemptive story? And this is why we must have strong knees. Because corporate strategy books just won't work. Self-help books just won't help. We must have strong knees. As God, as God leads us and allows us to be reparted in his great redemptive work, seeing what only he can see. Isaiah is preaching God's assurance to his captive people, that people in the midst of great suffering who are being held captive, he's, they're being reminded, fear not, the Lord will come. For our great Redeemer is doing his work. What he assured his people of in Isaiah 11 was the same work he assured John he was doing in Matthew 11. And he is still doing his redemptive work through us and will bring it to completion upon his return. He will come and save us. Like that's, that's, that's Isaiah's uh, his, his word to the people. Uh, he, he will come and save you. And for us, We have an even greater hope than the people Isaiah spoke to because he came. He did come and save us. He came and made a way for us that now we get to live in and live out of and and exemplify the ways of the kingdom and reap the rewards of, of the kingdom here and now while we await Christ coming and finishing what he started. No, we don't live in things. Things are not all made new as they will be in the kingdom. But the way that we're called to live and reflect the life that's intended for the glory of God, we get to partake in such things now. He's glorified in our faithfulness. The Lord is glorified in your struggle, Christian. In your struggle, in your times of wavering, when you struggle, repent, get back on the road and make your feet straight again. There's only one reason you do that, because God is who he said he is. Verses 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, 
and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do you get this? Jesus, when he, when he assured John who he said he was, when he assures John that he is the Messiah, he basically quotes Isaiah 5 and 6 to John. He points John back to God's word. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the, death, the ears of the death unstopped. The lame man, the paralytic, shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He's reminding John, like, John, do you remember Sunday school, dude? Like, this is who I said I was. This is what I said I would do. This is what's happening. And this was all that John needed. We don't hear from John again. He's good. He quotes these verses as an assurance to John, assuring John of what he, that what he was doing was a picture of something that he would one day do completely. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty grounds springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Isaiah paints this picture for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. When God's salvation comes, miraculous provision comes with it. What was dry and useless before becomes well-watered and useful and fruitful. Streams in the desert. Jesus said that he would bring this kind of beautiful provision in the lives of his people. What will one day be done perfectly is now available for you and I. Again, the ways of the kingdom are available for his children here and now. What a gift. John 7, 38 through 39, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet glorified. For us, we don't ever thirst in the desert void of sustenance. Like it's never unavailable for us. We need merely call upon the Lord. Make strong our weak knees. We are often guilty of crying out in the desert as the Spirit sits beside us offering a canteen of cool water. We need merely call upon Him. We need to reorient our lives to acknowledge this water and to let it strengthen us. On May 21st, 2005, David Wallace, he gave an instantly famous graduation address at Kenyon College, and it was entitled, This is Water, and he be it began with a short story. There are two fish swimming along. These are two young fish, and they happen to meet an older fish who was swimming the other way, and who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? The point of this story is that often the most obvious realities of our lives are the hardest things for us to see. The habits we cling to daily are the water in which we live. How are your habits aiding in the strengthening of your hands and knees? How are your habits inviting the great Redeemer who has, who has redeemed you perfectly. Like, you, you, you are perfectly righteous before God. But he invites you into more than that, to now be a redemptive people. How do the habits of your normal life, the water in which you live, invite that work? Invite the Spirit to do that which Christ gave him to do? What would it look like for us to seek of the Spirit 
seek the, the aid of the Spirit throughout our day, even as we approach a new year. I just encourage you. I know we're coming to a time where January 1st is around the corner. All of us, you know, like, man, I feel like I'm, I'm about to make my yearly commitment to lose 15 pounds. We're going to watch the Lord and stream less show. You know, we're going to come up with a million things. But as you're just, as we now have a couple of weeks before that, during this natural year, this natural time in our year where we, we make commitments, ways we desire to grow, I would just challenge you to be thinking of that. What would it look like to establish rhythms in your life that invite the great Redeemer into it and to be making you more like him? What would it look like to even now begin preparing yourself for that and finding a way to be in God's word each and every day that it might do its work in you? And maybe you don't have to do that by yourself. Maybe you continually get discouraged when you do that because you don't understand, but maybe there's somebody else in this room that feels the same way. What would it look like to invite them into this with you? What would it look like to commit to hit your knees before you hit your feet each day? Now, obviously, that might be tricky logistically, literally, but we could get pretty close, okay? Like, well, 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 well how, how, would that, how could that change everything for you? If, if your day began with inviting the Spirit into leading you, inviting the Spirit to speak, asking the Spirit to lead you in all the things that he's called you to for that day, it's almost like this physical, it's not, it's not just calling upon the Spirit, but even for your own heart, it's acknowledging that everything you're about to enter into is dependent on him. That Christ himself called out to the Spirit, how much more do we need such? What would it look like to commit and be known by a small circle of people who you could wrestle with in these things together? God invites us into this. We need to be aware of the water in which we live, the things that make up our daily. And how are they making a conforming us to the image of Christ? How are we inviting such things? As we close this morning, the rest of this uh, section here in Isaiah, verses 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pay, pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah paints this picture of a, of a highway of holiness. Today, good, root, good roads are a part of, of daily life. Okay, I mean, not necessarily if you live in like West Joplin, where roads are being fixed every single day. But for the most part, like we have good roads all the time. That's part of our life. But in the ancient world, a good road, a highway, was an amazing blessing for travel, for progress, for business. These were rare, and sometimes it would take a great deal of work to figure out how to get to and fro and where one might be available. And Isaiah announces that in the ministry of the great Redeemer, there will be a wonderful highway, a road, known as the way of holiness. The Hebrew word for highway indicates what our English word literally says, meaning a highway. It speaks of a road's 
raised, lifted above the ground. It's a high and glorious road to travel on. Okay, it's like like everything we dreamed that would take place when we watched the Jetsons as kids. Like it's a picture. Like we're really going to be up and above everything else. Charles Spurgeon, uh, his commentary on this verse says, Engineering has done much to tunnel mountains and bridge abysses. But the greatest triumph of engineering is that which made a way from sin to holiness, from death to life, from condemnation to perfection. Who could make a road over the mountains of our iniquities but Almighty God? None but the Lord of love would have wished it. None but the God of wisdom would have devised it. None but the God of power could have carried it out. This is good news. It's good news that strengthens our drooping hands. It's good news that strengthens our weak knees. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we're getting close. If you don't believe me, go to Target. We're almost there. Everybody's out. You add today that snowpocalypse is coming, and my goodness, I don't even know what it's going to be like. Might we remember that the baby who came was the promised Redeemer. The God God who keeps his promises fulfilled his promise in Christ. His birth fulfilled God's promise and his death made a way for us to holiness. Would Would we steward that gift well? The price has been paid. We don't steward that gift that God may love us, but God loves us, so we steward that gift that we might become more like him. And we celebrate this truth as a people who are still living and witnessing his redemptive work in the world today and who await its completion at his return. Will you pray with me this morning? God, thank you that you've made a way for us. It is a, a feat that, uh, that we cannot comprehend fully, we cannot uh, fully grasp the depths of, but yet it saves us. God, make us more like you by its truth. God, with the good news of who you are and what you've done and, and your, your personal love for us, Would that not be something we forsake? Would that not be something we make little of? But would it flow in and strengthen and shape every aspect of our lives, O Lord? God, I, I acknowledge that we will fall short in that. We do fall short in that. But yet your grace prevails all the more. God, would we, in our moments of shortcoming, in our moments of struggle, would, 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 would you continue to just grow us all the more in our acknowledgement of your grace? How great is your grace that you not offer us the, the greatest gift of all time, but we, we surely bobble it and forget it, and, and yet you love us all the more. Thank you, O oh Lord. Thank you for your goodness, for your magnificent grace. God, would you... Uh, open the eyes of, of many more that they might see this way, that they may cross over from condemnation to glory. Lord, use us as a, as a means in which to point them to such a road. We can't put them on it. We know that. But we can point, Lord. We can, we can tell of it. 
We can tell of our own safe passage, our own journey. Lord, help us to do such things. May we delight in that you invite us into such a thing. Your, your glorious work, your, your redemptive story, Lord, you invite us to be a part of that. You use us as a as, as, as vessel by which your good news goes forth. Thank you, Jesus. Burden us joyfully with the, with the desire to steward such an amazing gift. That when you do return, as you promised you return, Lord, we, may, we be, may, may we be singing. May we await such a day and not be caught off guard by it. But what our whole lives have been in just preparation. Lord, help us to live in, in preparation for you. All else is, is little. God, all else is little. All else is just so little, Lord. Remind me of this, Holy Spirit. Point me to things which are bigger than, uh, than the petty things that occupy my mind. That you might be glorified in me. That you might be glorified in us. That you might be glorified in our church, in our lives. Lord, would you make this so? Holy Spirit, we are dependent on you. We pray these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.